you know, how do we look at the future of synthetic biology without looking first to the past? Uh, and so what in your worldview is sort of the history of this space and how it's evolved to the present day? Uh, it's a very broad um, question. So the, the example that I like to give about the evolution of the field from my perspective, which again is a very narrow view, you know, focusing specifically on proteins, is the advent of recombinant insulin back in the 80s. So that specific innovation really changed, um, you know, I, I, I think that's the first protein therapeutic that was done, you know, uh, produced in a recombinant way and it really changed the way uh, people were treating um, um, diabetes. So up to the point that was extracted from, from pigs, if I'm not mistaken, and then we had this ability to create, to basically um, manufacture um, human insulin within bacteria. And we have a significantly, you know, drop the cost of production and also prevent a lot of uh, problems associated with using non-human insulin. Um, and when I, when I explain to people what we do at Enzymate and the challenges that we're faced, the thing that really blows their mind is they don't realize the way that, you know, inserting foreign DNA into bacteria in order to produce a desired protein is a, is a solved problem for like the past three decades. For, for them, that's like the key that really blows their mind. Um, so once we solved this problem, that was kind of the, like the invention of the personal computer. Now that we have this technology, we can think about what we can do, what we can do with that. Um, and so I think following that breakthrough, the key innovations that followed suit, not, not, not in, um, you know, not as, uh, as quickly, but was DNA synthesis. And that really brought down hurdles, um, at least for us at the protein design field. So designing, I mean, synthesizing DNA even five, six years ago um, was prohibitively expensive. So companies like, like ours, like small startups, we couldn't really design and test the amounts that we needed in order to innovate um, in protein space. And now we can order, you know, a library of, of you know, a million um, gene fragments and, and for about a few thousand dollars. Um, so I equivocate that to, you know, the, like the early days of companies like Microsoft and Apple. I know, I know it's a lofty comparison, but, but I think it's, it's, it's in place. So if, if the cost of the of the raw you know of the raw material or the or the you know uh, parts that you need in order to build your product are so cheap that you can essentially do it in your garage, that really opens up innovation. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. I mean, it it comes to a point where now people are doing synthetic biology pretty much in their garage. I mean, you have a whole movement in the U.S. not not so much in Israel of, of you know so-called biohackers. And they have essentially the same access to the technology that we have um, at Enzymet or other, you know, um, biotech companies. You, you don't need very expensive equipment. You don't need access to, you know, the, the information is out there, the access to the, uh, to the parts is out there. Um, and I think this is gonna be, you know, really accelerate development in the fields, if that makes sense. Thank you, Gideon. That's a great, great start. Gita, what would you, you know, add or subtract or, you know, multiply? 
So yeah, so definitely the, the story of Genentech and, and insulin is where people really place the birth of, of biotechnology. Um, but if that started, let's say in the early 1970s, and we're only seeing this really huge, crazy uptick in the past few years, then I would, I would echo and maybe just sharpen what it is that Gideon is saying, where it's about having the right tools and having the right picks and shovels. And so uh, the ability to, to do computation is very exciting, but if your computer uh, needs to be delivered to your home in a humongous truck, not to your home, to a Stanford computer lab in a huge truck and costs a million dollars, there's a very small amount of people who can work on it for a very niche amount of applications that it would have to be justified, right? So that's the computational revolution was just the ability to have access to cheap and easy um, um, computing so that anyone could do it. Uh, at the very beginning of COVID, so March 4th, I was in India on vacation before we thought that COVID was gonna be a really big deal last March. That's what this background is about. And, and we went to visit this little kind of slums in Mumbai where they didn't have running water in their homes. There was just a public bathroom for a slum of 3000 people. Um, but this little girl pulled out her smartphone to take a selfie with me and then sent it to me on WhatsApp. So that's what computation has gotten to today. And then what happened in the parallel world of synthetic biology, by the way, she doesn't stop WhatsApping me. She's really cute, like till it's been a year. Um, and in the world of synthetic biology, there's this slide that just drives me wild by George Church, where in the 1980s, he ordered two oligos. So an oligo is just a string of, you know, DNA letters, A-G-C-T, 11 letters long, okay? And each, each string he ordered cost $6,000. So he spent $12,000 for these two strings of 11 letters. How many experiments are you gonna do if that's what it costs you to write DNA? Who in the world can afford to make these experiments, right? This is George Church at, at Harvard. Um, today, you, you go online and you can order genes that are thousands of letters long from Twist for like a couple hundred bucks. It's, it's, not, it's not rocket science, it's just accessible. Um, and, and to me and to a lot of people, this is not a, a new concept, but it's really mind blowing when you put those numbers next to each other. This is what is enabling the, the tech bio revolution and the synthetic biology revolution. Anybody can read and write DNA now. Um, biohackers is more popular in the United States, but I have a PCR machine uh, you know, under my bed. I have a little lab kit in, in my house that my husband knows not to touch that or the enzymes in the freezer. And, and you know, he knows to be very careful with what's going on over here. And, and we can test things out and ask questions and I can teach a sixth grader to start using it where only a postdoc would be able to get near it in the 1980s or 1990s. So that's really what's enabling all these really cool apps that you can put on top of these now accessible technologies. Love it. Thank you so much. I guess we've moved from monsters under the bed to PCR machines under the bed. Um, Izen, what, what would you like to add or divide? That, or that's really awesome because you root. said that. Uh, because I, I've been thinking about uh, a lot along the same lines as well in terms of kind of maybe the future is like another topic we'll cover, but this democratization of biology right now, you and me and everyone can hopefully can do it in the comfort of our homes uh, and run some really cool experiments or even manufacture our own personal products. Uh, I think that's maybe that's the future that, that we're going towards. But in terms of the, the history question here that uh, that was asked by Max. Um, you know, I mean, I think the, um, I think Gita and Gideon said it really well already. Um, I think 
for me, the, the way I think of it is just the acceleration of the tools that have really uh, driven the space uh, over the past few decades. Um, anywhere from, like you guys mentioned, the DNA synthesis aspect of things, the molecular tools, as we call it, the, the declining cost uh, from DNA synthesis or genome engineering, right? The knocking and knockouts that we can do with the new tools. Uh, also DNA sequencing as well as, as you guys mentioned. So both the reading and writing to the genome has, has declined in cost drastically over the past uh, decades. Um, and on top of that, you have these uh, uh, increase in compute power um, uh, in, in computational tools from, um, you know, the, you can run a lot of these algorithms really efficiently um, because um, you can run these on the cloud. Um, so all of that is enable us to really do kind of what we call, I guess, what I think of as like high throughput biology today. Um, in a sense of, you know, you, the, the, the whole thing about biology is that we don't, we just don't know much about it until we test an experiment, right? So the increase in number of experiments that we do is only going to help us understand more about what works and what doesn't work uh, with regards to biology, as we call it. So this high throughput biology really uh, is enabled by these influx of molecular tools uh, that reads and writes the genome and computational tools. A lot of the tools aspect, maybe the you know, biology innovation, as we call it, or a software innovation on the compute side, right? And then we're going to see also, we already saw some hardware innovation in terms of the analytical tools and chips that can do these readouts on a massive scale. So when you put these three different pieces together, when you have the software and the hardware and the biology innovation, uh, the three things together that can increase the throughput of these experiments that allow us to gather more insights into the biology today than we otherwise uh, could not, you know, decades ago, that says, you know, we are perhaps on a, you know, a exponential understanding of our systems today uh, that we otherwise do not have access to years ago. Uh, and that's why what that's what makes this feel so exciting uh, to me is that we are just on the cusp of, you know, leveraging these tools today. And, you know, we already have used some of these tools to discover new CRISPR-Cas9 uh, Cas enzymes and various type of really cool, you know, proteins that we didn't know before who's got like, you know, just really excited to see what it can bring uh, in the future. Um, on the company side, you see that, okay, you know, the codex is like the director evolution was really the, the old days where, you know, you, you, you evolve and enrich and evolve again to the function that you want. And then, you know, this year we are celebrated by the, the IPO of companies like Zymogen, right? Uh, that's that's going public. That that leverages high throughput biology, various tools that we have today uh, to increase the throughput of those experiments um, uh, compared to Codexes. And then, um, as as we know, there are even younger, smaller companies that are innovating uh, further on, like companies like AFib Biomachines uh, on the hardware side to increase the, the screening at, at massive scale. Um, so. So that's that's kind of what I see in terms of, you know, a lot of these innovations that are uh, this trend of synthetic biology is really uh, enabled by the various tools that we have that we have developed over the years. Um, and the more experiments that we do, um, the better our understanding about uh, our biology, biological systems um, uh, today. Awesome. That was uh, 
the three of you together really blew my mind already. So thank you for that. We could end it now, but we're not going to. We're going to keep moving forward. So now I'd like you guys and girls to stimulate my imagination a little bit because um, you know, what we've outlined is sort of the technology and the infrastructure and how it's improved, but what does that actually imply uh, for the systems that surround us, whether it be food or energy, manufacturing or healthcare? What are some of the applications that you're most excited about uh, in the short term as well as the long term? And anyone feel free to just jump in if they're, you know, they're super excited. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this uh, opportunity. So, I mean, the way, the way I see it and the way I pitch it is it, it literally, the potential is endless. So one of the things I recently wrote a blog, blog post about it, the, for example, the way we manufacture food. So, uh, I mean, um, cultivated meat is a huge, huge growing market now. And I'm a true believer in that application. It's not, um, it's a great um application of synthetic biology. And, and, and I think the reason it's gonna, it's gonna blow up is not just because of the innovation behind it, but the fact that I think that the main driver for, all, for any innovation is cost, cost and quality. And if you can produce quality meat, that it's prob probably at higher quality than, than you know, um, cows grown on, grown on the pasture for, yeah. for a fraction of the cost, it's gonna drive um, it's going to drive widespread adoption, and this can be applied to almost any, you know, production um, production process we're using today. So, for example, another example I like to give is is um, agriculture. So, for example, we currently use plants as our as our main source of calories on the planet. Most of the calories that we consume as human beings are, are derived from from plants. But when you break it down, I mean, plants are, are a terribly ineffective way of converting essentially light energy into chemical energy, into calories. Um, no, matter, no matter how you slice it, per you know, um, area on which you grow plants, the actual chemical conversion process happening within the plants in photosynthesis, the, you know, the um, uh, resource, other resources going to, to uh, cultivating plants like water, um, we can do it in a much, much more efficient way. You could technically design an enzyme that directly converts an energy source, whether sunlight or energy or heat, directly into chemical bonds. Uh, and the, you know, that process is orders of magnitude more efficient than, than um, traditional agriculture. Um, so uh, this is where I see the field progressing. I mean, fermentation, I'm not just saying that it's a slogan. I really believe fermentation is going to be a the future of production. It's just a question of finding or designing the right enzymes, putting them in the right vessel. It can be, you know, the, an, or an organism or some sort of other uh, compartment and just uh, pumping in energy into that system. That's all you need. With the right amount of energy, you can pretty much do whatever you want. So I'm very optimistic about the future, you know, for the planet as a whole. I think a lot of the problems we're currently facing can be solved with the, you know, development of this technology. Thank you. Gita. So I think my top three things, which can very, very roughly be divided into short, medium, and long-term dreams. Uh, short being a very relative, <laughs> but... Um, first of all, it'd be decentralized production uh, and, and thereby robust supply chains. And COVID has done an excellent job of showing us how fragile and how interconnected we really, really are and how dependent we are on these really centralized sources of 
basic ingredients for, for medicines, for food production. Uh, I was in the States and everywhere it said that there was like a coin shortage, so they couldn't give me change during COVID. Uh, there was an aluminum shortage, so you could only buy glass beer bottles and not beer cans, like all these weird things that you're like, oh, we live on an actual planet with actual supplies that need to come from actual places. Well, um, coins are no longer something that's we'll good need, now. Because... I haven't been to the States since. No, uh, I'm just saying it, it went digital, you know, uh, oh, a few yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah. So it's not that big of a deal. But aluminum, yeah. I can see a big, yeah, big so, issue. Yeah, so blockchain for, for medicines. No, so. So uh, in, in terms of even just like certain basic ingredients for, for medicinal supplies that come from specific trees that take many, many years to grow and grow in certain climates. And in order to you know, confirm that they're okay, you need people from the FDA in the United States to fly over and, and check the GMP facilities, all these ways that we're interconnected and then a pandemic will just halt everything. If we can create the ingredients that we need in a local sustainable small way, Fermentation is one way to do that, but there are a lot of options people are working on, you know, self-free systems and um, using plants to produce therapeutics. I don't care what hammer you use, but the ultimate uh, goal would really be just this decentralized production of, you know, on-time delivery, what you need, when you need it, where you need it. Uh, I think that's really, really important. And it's something that synthetic biology is just classically designed to do. Um, I think in the more midterm, I'm very excited about, I've been calling it kind of in vivo medicines where you can use your body as the production uh, facility. So we're really excited about cell therapies. And then you say, oh, well, that's too specific. You have to take out the cells and expand them and edit them and put them back in. It's very expensive. But if you had off the shelf cells and I'm like, well, there are companies that are now thinking about taking it a step further where you should never take the cells out of your body in the first place. You can inject yourself with something that will teach your immune system to do X, Y, and Z that will adapt. Um, it sounds really sci-fi, but there are companies that are already working on this. There are technologies that are now in universities that are um, kind of, it's, it's just exciting. I like things that are modular, adaptable, dynamic. Um, and that's what biology is supposed to be. You don't have to create this huge siloed warehouse of stuff and then start distributing it around. You can react. Um, just like we've seen also, again, with COVID, with this vaccine where, you know, people got digital files of the sequence of this virus before they got the samples of the virus itself and they could start working on it. And, oh, you have variants and mutations. Well, we can just iterate really quickly because the digital and the uh, analog are starting to converge using synthetic biology. So kind of- So do we not have to worry about variants? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I am a medical doctor. No, this is being recorded. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a pandemic expert, um, but I do think we have the tools to react more quickly than we've ever been able to do it in the history of humanity. That I can tell you for sure. Uh, so, so that would be in the midterm. Uh, in the long term, and this is uh, something that's very personal, and the reason why it's exciting to have diversity on panels to offer this voice. So. Underneath this box, I'm seven and a half months pregnant. Gideon knows this. We had a face-to-face -face meeting last week. Oh, so amazing. Uh, and, and it's a really not um, efficient process, this whole pregnancy thing. It's my first child, so I didn't really know before now how ridiculous this whole thing is. <laughs> um, and it's beautiful and it's a miracle, but it's, but you know, it has its downsides. And I'm very excited in the long term 
for, you know, ex vivo wombs and just kind of grow your baby somewhere else. And I envision a future where it will be considered very weird um, for a human being to gestate their own child or even dangerous because, you know, I walk around all day, I'm breathing air that has like pollution. Um, maybe I'm stressed or maybe I'm not sleeping well. Like I can't offer the absolute best fetal environment where maybe like a GMP lab would be awesome for that. And <laughs> I think that it, this is a controversial point. Yes, I've, it is. I mentioned this to some women who are like, look at me like, and, and when I compare it to, uh, I, I have 18 nieces and nephews, so my sisters love having children, and and they're like, well, it's, like, it's so beautiful, and you can, and I compare it to, you know, there was a time that everyone grew their own cucumbers, and you are welcome to continue growing your own cucumbers, that is everybody's right and choice, but it's not a sustainable way to feed the world of seven, eight, nine, ten billion people, and, and it's better left to the professionals. So if 98% of the world used to work in agriculture and today it's 2%, that's my you know, short medium. So robust decentralized supply chains, in vivo dynamic medicines and ex vivo <laughs> child production um, is something that there's, there's, a, there's a scientist in Weitzman who just got us the, the furthest we've gotten so far. So he's grown. Uh, oh, oh. About to throw that in, you know, I, I wanted to correct you. I don't think it's uh, far term as much as you think it is, and they actually terminated that that uh, embryo. Yeah, but you know th what he didn't tell you. Like, if you look into the data, so so um, it's really really cool. It's coming out of the Weizmann Institute. They take um, mice embryos after four days of gestation, and then they can grow it in the lab. But the entire gestation for mice is 20 days. So four days is still a big percentage where it's happening in vivo. And I would not want to still do the first trimester, you know, hint, it's a bad one. So <laughs> I don't think we're exactly there. And by the way, this is just me being completely spoiled. There are obviously people who uh, are have reproductive challenges. There are same-sex couples. Um, you know, there's a story last week of a, a young woman in the Ukraine who just had 11 biological children through surrogacy uh, and and Max, you, you have some questions about ethics and how things like that work. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Her goal is to have a hundred children. <laughs> um, and the way wow. you have to do it now is by using human women to grow those children for you. So there's a lot going on there that can be unpacked, uh, but, but it doesn't help if you still need that first third for, for women, so. Wow, Thank you for that uh, very creative and thoughtful uh, short to long term. Izan, what comes up for you? Wow. Uh, first of all, um, it's just incredible how much like our, um, our thought process is aligned uh, from that perspective in terms of artificial womb. Um, I would love to see that paper. You can share that with me uh, after this, Gita. Uh, it's, it's something that I always feel like it's on the horizon of where we're going to go to. Um, but I feel like the field is still really early in making that into fruition. So um, I think like the long-term thing is, is definitely uh, um, the right timeline, uh, at least uh, for me to think about that. Um, and and I, I also just to comment on that too, like, you know, it's, I, I think that it will be a choice, right? In the end is like, you know, as a, as a parent, as a mom, why would you want to take on the risk of caring your kid, like for yourself, uh, your own risk as well as kids' risk. If we have a more robust, you know, model, robust way of 
having some other things carrying, um, you know, not right now we use other woman, right? Uh, as, like, as like a payment transaction here, but there could be technologies that we can leverage in the future. And, you know, I don't know if you guys saw um, the fertility rates uh, for, um, for, for mankind has been declining because all the chemicals and things that, that we have uh, today. So I don't think that's, you know, I think that's actually going to be a necessary solution to keep the species uh, alive and, and keep the species, um, you know, uh, keep reproducing it um, for, the, for the next few decades coming up. Um, so um, on my side, I think um, very similar to you guys, um, maybe on the food, food side and healthcare side, uh, on the food side, I definitely think that, you know, the problem is very, very real. Uh, even though fertility is going down, we still have a growing population of people to feed in this world. And we are going to run out of space to grow food, uh, to feed the entire world. So very naturally, we got to optimize the space via vertical farming, you know, via fermentation-based approaches, et cetera. And that's already here, right? I mean, tons of companies are now making clean meat, cellular agriculture, all of that. Um, they're now just solving the problem of reducing cost um, so that they can actually make these foods at, at a scale and economically. Um, I think it's- Also it's, also taste though, right? Taste, yeah. Um, but the thing is like, you know, just add a little sugar if people eat it. <laughs> <laughs> but then, uh, then we have to go to the healthcare part of the conversation. <laughs> That, that's exactly what I was thinking, you know, when, you know, looking at the history of the past, right, we used to eat really good farm grown food that we grow in our backyard, like the livestock and, you know, the vegetable, like you grow your own cucumbers, like you, like you just said, and we moved all the way from that to like very processed food, you know, mass manufacturing that led to, you know, arguably led to the obesity pandemic that we have in the US today. Right. And then, you know, now we see in this era, there's a shift towards whole foods again, right? I mean, you know, whole foods is, you know, organic whole foods is now in vogue and people recognize that nutrients and healthy aspect of it. And then if we talk about cellular agriculture, that's like ultra processed food, in my opinion, right? So then it's going to be interesting to see whether society uh, adjusts to that, right, and, and shift towards that, um, you know, arguably it's less processed than like the, the shredded wheat and, and everything that, that we eat in the, in the old generation. But at the same time, um, I think, it's interesting to see how, how, how we consume it and how we view it um, in, 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 in the next generation. Um, so that's definitely on the short-term side, that's getting realized. And another thing on the healthcare side, just to comment on in therapeutics, I mean, Gita, you mentioned that you were playing with CRISPR back in the day. Um, and I, I, I remember I was writing, like researching to CRISPR back in the 2015, well, very similar timeline when it first came out. Uh, just like the, the, the re revolutionary aspect of this molecular tool um, and what it's an initial applications that it's directly towards, right? Really good uh, low hanging fruit. Um, and at the time I wrote about, you know, hereditary diseases and CRISPR single gene knockdowns. That's really like the, 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 the point of its initial application. And today we're just seeing some of those being validated in the clinic, right? In clinical trials today. Um, and then next generation in terms of genome engineering, we see like synthetic circuits and cells. Um, you know, we can make these cells that are, you know, put function into them such that they can sense uh, things that it, such that after sensing them, they can release things that you want to do certain effects, like certain proteins that can kill cancer or uh, certain aspects, like, you know, certain cytokines that control other immune cells, as an example. Uh, to to uh, as a therapeutic, that's truly fascinating, exciting. 
Um, and then uh, the last point was also, um, you know, beyond cell therapy, in vivo CAR Ts. I think that's what you're mentioning there. Is that, you know, why not just use a virus or gene therapy such that they will find your T cells inside your body and make them CARs, right? Uh, you minimize exhaustion. You, uh, you don't have to do preconditioning when you take CAR T cell therapies. Um, so. Um, we see the promise of that as well. So uh, there's a lot of things going on and those are the things that, that, that I'm actually watching as well from my side. Cool, thank you. So, you know, the difference between the traditional sort of software investor mentality and the, I mean, more life sciences mentality is somewhat a function of time uh, and also, of, you know, regu regulatory approval. So in the software world, I can write some code, deploy it and, you know, start testing it uh, in this sort of, you know, wet world, uh, it's a little bit different in terms of how innovation ultimately gets realized into the market. So um, I'd love to hear from you guys how you think about sort of, and I think it's more investor focused, but maybe, you know, Gideon, you'll have a, an input here as well, but just how do you think about a company progressing in terms of milestones and making its way through, um, you know, Silicon Valley to, to raise capital? Um, relative to sort of the traditional pure software um, type of company? I, I don't know if I have like a really sharp answer to the question. It's just very different. <laughs> uh, so it's, it, okay, so it's interesting because we just joined NFX as NFX Bio. And, and NFX is a very tech-focused company and, and we're definitely going back and forth of like, what do we mean when we say traction and what do they mean when they say traction? And, right, right. Uh, and it's very different stuff. So most of What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, we mean um, peer-reviewed papers and IP and uh, proof of concept trials in vitro, in vivo. They mean customer acquisition and, and growth rates and net scores and I'm, I'm going to make an absolute mess of tech terms, but, but it's, it's just, it's just really different world. And then once you get into the life sciences or symbio world, there are many different worlds within that. So uh, if you're looking at biomanufacturing or if you're looking at companion diagnostics, or if you're looking at uh, drug delivery or drug discovery, like they have such different timelines, milestones, and amounts that they're raising that I don't have a very succinct, succinct intelligent way to answer that question. Uh, are you going to rescue me from this, Ethan, or? Sure, I'll comment um, on that. Um, and this is Teamwork. Really, really interesting dynamic, too, because, you know, I, I also work with tech funds and currently work with a like primary tech fund, right? Uh, Global Founders Capital, where we uh, have started investing in tech companies to start because of our founder and CEO. Um, so with that lens of, okay, we want to build out a biotech investment practice here and invest it in biotech. What does that look like in terms of the type of companies that, that we see, right? And how different they are and why, what's gonna make us, uh, a company compelling in life sciences versus in tech is completely different. Um, like, and I'm just going to ramble off like certain differences that are top of mind and it's not like they're 16 in, in any way either. But um, I think one of the first thing is uh, in tech, oftentimes um, if you 
you know, if you're building a product that's say just like a typical enterprise SaaS, um, oftentimes you're taking on the risk of product market fit because you're pretty sure that this product is going to be built, right? And but then you don't know if it's going to be widely used, like a lot of the like the the, the commercial risk that you're taking on, um, and less so really on the tech side. Whereas in life sciences, uh, a lot of the risk that you're taking on is actually on the technology and scientific risk because you're not going to get to revenue for like you know five to seven years, or even ten years for therapeutics companies. So how do you know if people are going to willing to pay for it? You, you just don't know that, right? Unless like until your product is going to be on the market. So that revenue cycle is much longer, but then you have to really understand the value inflection points of these life sciences companies are very different from tech companies and understanding aligning on that oftentimes communicating to our, you know, our partnership in terms of what those differences are and why this is company is valued at this amount at this stage, given the data they have today, a lot of education uh, is, is involved, uh, involved there. Um, and then um, the the other aspect is yes, like your your time to revenue is a lot longer. So, um, but that doesn't mean that your the valuation is not going to. That's the only value inflection point of the company, right? So, um, so being comfortable around uh, kind of the the scientific risk that you're taking at the current stage and understanding what exactly that is the next value inflection point is going to be a lot easier to kind of build that investment. Um, um, uh, commitment or investment hunch uh, into a particular company there. Um, oftentimes people think about, you know, therapeutics is often binary risk, right? Uh, and oftentimes that is true because if your drug fails, it's gone. Like, like you, know, you run experiments in, in, in a clinic, uh, you know, and then it somehow doesn't work. You are paying to learn that lesson. That's ultimately what happens. And that's why a lot of the tech investors don't want to take on that binary risk and want a lot more of a platform-based approach, right? Like maybe like a technology that can generate multiple different assets so that I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket. Um, the, 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 you know, that's definitely, you know, you, it's like a lower risk uh, kind of, uh, of a context there if you can get that to work. But oftentimes the value is in the asset that you generate. So in the end, you still have to take on that risk later on, but maybe you can get some comfort around some of the early stage validation that can really help you de-risk that future product development risk a little bit uh, later. Um, so um, it is very different. Uh, you know, I encourage you guys to read the, the banters between um, uh, our, a lot of the thought leaders in this space, you know, Derek Lowe from, from a lot of the, the, the drug discovery drug hunter side commenting on uh, bioengineering, like, you know, computational biology aspect uh, to like, you know, the Andreessen Horowitz, like very, um, very uh, bullish on engineering biology as the future, that how the uh, differences opinion uh, uh, shown up uh, uh, is uh, delineated in those conversations is, is actually quite interesting. Everybody has their proof points. Um, uh, and then I think the, in the end, uh, biology, it just unexpected. It just takes more experimentation. Ex or else like why would we have disease in our lives, right? Everything should be solved. Actually, what's really interesting, I'll, I'll, I'll just add one thing to that because we invest almost purely in platform companies. And that is kind of exciting where you can find sort of that middle ground between tech and bio is in platform companies where it's not zero or one and you have this single asset, but you actually have multiple levels of proof points and ways that you can get to market. And so, um, along the way, trying to go all the way to find your therapeutic or find whatever it is, you can have early revenue in the form of partnering with biotech and pharma companies, having them 
pay you to get to your own internal proof of concept while helping them with X, Y, or Z um, application. Or you can also go through many different verticals where you can be building you know, low regulation research uh, products while going through high regulation diagnostics or therapeutics. When you have a platform play, you have a lot of different ways to play. And it's still gonna take more time and more money than a SaaS company, but you know, you can look at um, Mammoth Biosciences, which is not exactly a tech bio company, it was pre-tech bio, but they have this really cool CRISPR thing where they can tell you if a given sequence is in a solution or not. And then what do you do with that platform? You can take it to the oil and gas industry where there's really no regulation to say if I have a pollutant in my sample and start making early revenue. Um, but you can go into research tools and help people who are, you know, preclinical trials or pure research, slightly higher regulation, but still much lower. And then you can go all the way to over-the-counter diagnostics for, for COVID tests or, or HPV. Um, and, and at each inflection point, you're, you're creating value, you're proving that your technology works, and, and you're de-risking and your valuation goes up along the way. So that is definitely a plus of platform technologies that are highly enabled by all the picks and shovels we discussed uh, after the mm -hmm. first And I think that's definitely the, the attractive playbook that a lot of companies are taking today, right? With the, the platform play, exactly like you said, partner with big biopharma companies, learn from them, get their data, you own all the insights and relationship and you learn how they think about a particular product, how to bring it forward. You use that revenue to de-risk your own internal development, right? Um, and then uh, hopefully, eventually, you have you gain value by having your own internal programs, or just you know, or you're really good at BD, baked in milestones and, and royalties, right? With these contracts and partnerships that we have, um, and that's definitely been um, been a really successful model we see play. I mean, Axel went public because of that model, right? The Eli Lilly partnership with the COVID uh, interbody there. Um, that that's uh, I think a lot of now like you know as investors like are we thinking about okay if the partnership is the route we need to make sure that there's a good BD guy on the team right that can do uh, secure these partnership with the platform to really de-risk uh, the company um, I think you know a lot of these companies also need a lot more capital in the end uh, to continue to grow and, and, and fund their programs so I think we still need a little bit more probably the downstream you know, larger sized funds to really support these, right? Because the typical biopharma funds may not like these plays yet because they're like, you know, I don't want to pay more than X amount of dollar for anything that doesn't have like, you know, even animal data at this point, right? Whereas these platform plays are being kind of, you know, valuations up and up uh, because of the hype in this space. Gideon, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, uh, so just to chime in from the entrepreneur's point of view, and I, and I really agree and like what I'm hearing from Gideon is in um, from there. And I mean, we we decided uh, as a strategic decision to go and build a platform exactly for those reasons. So we're not putting, you know, betting the farm on a single product or a single protein to succeed or fail. And just to comment as a whole on, on the field, and, and I think, um, you guys kind of took it more into the pharma space, but we're more focused currently on biomanufacturing. Bio One of the things that I'm seeing in biology, and it's just, I'm not obviously not the first to say this. I think Tom Knight, you know, starting Ginkgo pretty much um, has a great post on, on this kind of philosophy and why he started Ginkgo. 
which is we're trying to engineer biology. So a lot of the early successes in biology were almost, um, you know, um, accidental mistakes, really serendipitous uh, discoveries. And it's a very, very inefficient way to uh, progress in science. But if you have a fundamental understanding of how the, the science work, and if you can engineer from the bottom, from the bottom up, it really accelerates your development. Um, now, for me personally, one of the reasons why I decided to focus specifically on enzymes and not whole pathway is the complexity problem. And, and the, the examples you guys gave about, you know, pharmaceuticals is, is a great example. A lot of drugs work fantastically on the plate, but when you take them out to human trials or even animal trials, they fail because the system is so complex. You don't, you can't anticipate the effects you have in a very, you know, well, well-tuned um, ecosystem. Um, so my approach, and again, this is something that I'm echoing um, Tom Knight here, is to decrease complexity. So you're focusing on a very specific, specific component. I want to create an enzyme that can go from A to B. If I can, if I know how to, uh, you know, do this in in a in a, in a uh, sustainable manner, then I can work up and now put in more enzymes into the pathway. And I think some companies have tried to go from the bottom up. So they want to create a product. They try to identify different, you know, natural enzymes and they get stuck when they're missing that one key element that can complete your pathway. And if you don't have that enzyme, then you don't have a, the, the pathway. But if you know, if you know how to build a, a single components, then at least for me, the way I see our technology progressing is we know how to build the components, then building a pathway is you know, the, the next logical step. If you can do that, then production, going back to what Gita said before, you know, this decentralized manufacturing process is almost a given. You know, it's very, I don't, you don't need heavy manufacturing. If you have a, a, a biofermenter, you're done, that's it. Put, put your components in, in, in whatever organism you're using and you can produce pretty much whatever. So I, I know I said a mouthful, but but I definitely believe in that vision. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, you. You know, I can actually rely on you to to share a mouthful, no matter what the topic. So it's uh, it's all good. Now we're we're kind of running low on time. Uh, we have seven more minutes, um, and I could probably keep going for another hour, but I want to be respectful of the night over here in Tel Aviv and Izen's day that is just getting started over there. So. Um, you know, we'll, we'll try to have maybe two more questions, but if this next one gets us, you know, sort of talking, we might close with this one. Uh, and, and this is to circle back on probably the most important question of all, which is, you know, how does this impact society, all of these incredible innovations, and what sort of are the, you know, moral and ethical implications that you personally are, are a little bit most, most concerned about at this stage? So, so, so I'm sorry I'm jumping in again, but it's something I thought about before. Again, going back to what Gita said about CRISPR and and you know, in utero and utero babies and designing um, and 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 genetic engineering. So the, the two you know um, scary aspects of this technology is the fact that it's so decentralized and it's so easily accessible. I mean, Gita was half half joking, but you can go online now, order um, virus fragments, and she wasn't she wasn't you know um, you know exaggerating. This is exactly how these different companies got their hands on the COVID uh, uh, sequence. You can just send it online as a text file and synthesize it in your lab. Um, and there is no way to to prevent that. I with 
relatively very, you know, uh, with minimal resources can essentially synthesize the exact same virus in my garage, right? And I heard this great talk by a guy called Eric Weinstein. He's a consultant over at um, Peter Thiel Ventures. Yeah. Yes, thank you. And he he defined it as a double nuclear uh, the double nucleus problem the atom the atom bomb and the fact that um, DNA synthesis and engineering is is becoming so accessible. And that honestly is something that I don't think we have an answer to yet. There there is no efficient way of preventing somebody from getting his hands on you know these. You know, synthesizing whatever um, without any supervision. So that's one aspect that that we I think we should be thinking about. And the the second aspect is um, you know disparity between classes. So if you look, for example, at the United States, you can see that upper you know upper class families send their their kids to you know better schools. They get better education. That's a way for them to entrench themselves in that class. Which of course is human nature. I mean, I would want my children to have the the, the best you know education, healthcare. So imagine if you can do that on the genetic engineering level. And this is not you know a, a, something we should be worried coming down the line in ten years from now. It's happening now. I know of companies in San Francisco that are offering. It's it's. Essentially, it's still illegal, but you know, with enough money, you can have you can you can have your your embryos DNA sequenced and then choose the more you know favorable embryo. So it's still not genetic engineering per se, but it is you know essentially eugenics in a very um, primitive way. Yeah. Yes. Oh. And, and so these are the two things that I think we should be concerned about. I'm more concerned about the lights in the background of your screen because they are just as scary as the, the words coming yeah. through. <laughs> I'm sorry, my girlfriend just came back and she turned on the ceiling fan, so I apologize no, it's, for that. It, it's all good. Um, thanks for sharing, Gideon. Gita, what are, you, what are you thinking about? Can I just say, in terms of ordering sequences online and whatever else, you know, we're, we're all the time trying to build in code of like who's ordering what and what can you do for what. and. It's still totally scary. Uh, there are desktop printers now where you can print your own DNA at home and then really no one's checking your sequences. But, you know, scale up and distribution of that stuff is still really hard. And I remember when 3D printers came out, everyone, the only thing anyone could say is like, everyone's gonna print guns. They're all gonna print guns. That's the only use case that anyone can think of for a 3D printer is just guns everywhere. Today, there are no guns. And now that there are 3D printers, everyone will have guns. It's crazy. Um, I, I'm an optimist. I'm a scientist. I'm excited about technology. I think a lot of it boils down to like what kind of world philosophically we think that we live in, you know, read Lord of the Flies and are people ultimately good or are people ultimately evil? Um, and do we want to live in a world of like Star Trek prosperity or like Star Wars, like everything's really grim and, and civil war and and it's possible that I'm very vulnerable because if I'm all happy prosperity, then I'm very vulnerable to attack from someone who thinks otherwise. I'm, I'm totally there, but you know, I'll be dead so I don't have to worry about it. Um, but but I'm, not, I'm not great at thinking about these things because I'm just so excited about the future. Um, and and the, the class disparity is a huge problem and it scares me you know, to, to one extent, but to the other extent, like, I was in India and they had smartphones and they sent me WhatsApps and that couldn't have happened if there wasn't first that bigger market of Silicon Valley, I don't know, using Blackberries or whatever. So, so that kind of the trickle down theory that in economics doesn't work and technology actually kind of 
does in a lot of ways. So the more we work on these technologies and make them more affordable, more and more people will have access to them. Um, I have minus seven uh, corrective lenses. And if lenses didn't exist, that's, that's like, that's an augmentation. Like I would be a disabled member of society uh, without it. So I need all of these things to help me in my day to day. And those technologies used to be only for the very, very wealthy and, and they do trickle down. So I'm excited. I know maybe I'm naive and really bad things can happen with, with Symbio, but I just, it's hard for me to see it. I, I think ultimately we're good and we're excited to help as many people as possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you guys both. I don't, you know, all points are well said. Um, you know, I do see a trend where, you know, with the decentralization and the democratization of biology, we're gonna can, we can do a lot more on our own than before. And who's not gonna say that, you know, a 3D printing for guns could be like, you know, you can cause a biological warfare by designing a novel virus that's like highly, you know, deadly, right, uh, in, in your garage. I think those things are, definitely need to be considered um and uh for every technology you have to reuse it responsibly uh, responsibly right for good and the bad so um i can definitely see uh the the tightening of restriction in the future once we have these bad cases going on but you know i i have faith uh in, in us to figure it out um as the technology matures but i do think that um you know as someone in the the scientific field right we do need these technologies to advance humankind, to, to cure diseases, to save the, the loved ones that we have. Uh, so, um, and then we just need policies to, to enforce it and, and use it responsibly. As this industry evolves, so too will we. 